and welcome to Invasion of the Potty People. I am your host, Russell, for this fabulous evening where we celebrate some of the best of films. And don't worry, there'll be no Nan movie chat here. My co-host will be the ever delightful. Hi. Well, hi. Um, I, I'd like to thank the podcast. I'd like to thank the people. And most of all, I'd like to thank the movies for giving me words to say better than any that I could say. And, and being here, I realise I realized that you like me. You really like me. <laughs> and we start playing the music and go on to our next winner, which is... Hello, I am Roger Smith, and I am so delighted to be... Oh, I'm being told that I'm not actually the host. It's actually James Rodriguez. No, seriously, he's the actual host. Oh, what a... Yeah, that's never happened before, but... Oh, I suppose uh, once in a moonlight it happens. Uh, but yeah, I'm James Rodriguez, and I'm... I'm... <laughs> I'm here, I guess. <laughs> And we've got all the right envelopes of all the right winners tonight, because in about a week's time from when we're recording this, it's going to be the Oscars. Happens every year and it awards a certain number of films, a certain number of awards. And we're going to chat a bit about it. But before we do, a film that's not nominated and might get nominated next year, but don't know. The big film at the moment is The Batman. So we're going to briefly talk about no spoilers because some of you might have not seen it. And if you haven't seen it, I mean, that's a choice I wouldn't have made. I've seen it twice already. Uh, James, what do you think of The Batman? Now, I went and saw this uh, midnight screening and it was I was knackered to sit down, sit through half an hour of of trailers and adverts before getting into a three-hour film and staying till the end with, uh, of the credits, which, just full fair warning, if you stay for the credits in the hopes of a post credit scene, you may be disappointed. <laughs> but considering the factors, considering how late it was, considering everything, I was riveted all the way through. I did not feel the three-hour runtime. It honestly breezed by for me and I was amazed at how this film made a character we've seen so much depicted so many different ways still feel different distinctive and I thought it was one of my favorite takes on the character enhanced by the magnificent Robert Pattinson and his wonderful eye acting I thought it was just a truly spectacular take on the character. And I really love what Matt Reeves was going for. And it wasn't just Pattinson's show because you had Colin Farrell doing a spectacular job as the Penguin. Zoe Kravitz just bossing it in with her take on Catwoman. And Jeffrey Wright as the wonderful um, second part of this partnership as he and the bat were solving trying to solve the riddler's web of intrigue and and just deception and underlying corruption and which also brings me to the wonderful paul dano 
doing a wonderful job as Dissideration of the Riddler. Um, I, I'm just head over heels for this film. Um, Vincent, were you as enamoured as I was? I would say probably not quite because um, I enjoyed it enormously. I wouldn't say I, I the funny thing is I can't think of anything wrong to say about it, but I guess I'm just not as bowled over as you are. I mean, my <clears throat> summation of the Batman is that it is a grim, brooding, brutal, intimate, street level, vigilante, detective, revenge thriller and it takes its time to combine noir, horror, action, superhero, and disaster tropes to gripping, visceral, and enthralling effect. And I absolutely agree with everything you said, James, in terms of I think all of the performances are great. Um, the, um, it, despite the long, you know, the three-hour runtime, I, I never felt it was dragging. And what's interesting is it's not, I mean, partly it's a long film because there's a lot of plot, but it's also a long film because there's a lot of slow motion. And, you know, I'm not criticising the slow motion, but if you took that out of it, you'd probably shave at least 20 minutes or not 30 off the running time, which is interesting to think about. And what I think is most notable, uh, because similarly, I agree, it's um, a really great um, version of the character and indeed of the mythos as a whole. And what I think it does is, because it's impossible to watch the Batman, particularly when, if anyone listened to our last episode, you're as well-versed in bat lore as we all are, <laughs> and not think about, compare it to the earlier versions. And what I think is really interesting is, what I see in Matt Reeves' The Batman is I see some of the kind of gothic stylistics of Tim Burton. I see the um, inner psychological and um, political um, intrigue of um, Christopher Nolan's um, trilogy. And I think we've also got some of the, speaking of slow-mo, the portent and the gravitas of the Snyderverse. And yet despite that, despite having all of these elements that echo earlier films, as well as you know, echoing things outside of the Batman franchise, it's been compared, um, I think quite fairly to things like films like Seven, and Zodiac and Saw, despite all of the resonances, it's still its own beast. Um, it does things that are distinctive, particularly in its presentation, I think of Wayne Manor and the Batcave and Batman's equipment. Um, those are all distinctive. The approach that Batman takes and I think kind of the inner psychology as well and as you say the fact that it goes deeply into the it uses the corruption um, and the that criminal aspect of Gotham City I think to great effect and that's why of the various words I use to describe it I think the single most important one is intimate this isn't um, something as as grandiose um, of, as the Burton, Schumacher, Nolan, Snyder versions of Batman. This is something that you really, I think, get under the cape and the cowl. Um, and it's, it's an intimate, it's a claustrophobic, it's often an uncomfortable watch. But again, I certainly wasn't uncomfortable sitting in the cinema three and a bit hours. Yeah. And I also agree, it's not really worth staying till the end of the credits, <laughs> unless you happen to really enjoy that sort of thing. Russell, what did you think? 
I mean, I agree with everything said there. I had uh, a whale of a time in this film. I had, I, I think it's pretty great. Uh, I have some slight reservations uh, about it, but not not really. And I watch, I've seen it twice in the cinema uh, because I really wanted to experience certain sequences again. I might watch it a third time because there's certain sequences where this film just all seems to click into place for me, where the technical prowess because for me, it's really impressive from a technical standpoint, the music, the the way that Gotham is crafted and shot and uh, the tone and feel of it is is what most impressed me about it. But yeah, the cast is amazing. Um, everyone does a great job, even those who have rather small parts. I, I It's the first superhero villain that I've been scared of. So that's something. Paul Dano is remarkable in this. Um and that car chase, that car chase is phenomenal, is the thing that I just want to keep going and watching because it, it has such a weight to it, it's such a noise, and they shoot it predominantly from either attached to one of the cars or from the perspective of a car, and it's all very, very well done, which, yeah, I, I it's not my favourite version of Batman for obvious reasons, but I could, I can see it getting more and more one that I love as I go on. As I rewatch, as I revisit it, it has that kind of quality to it that feels can be revisited and unpacked some more. And we can use it as a nice segue because Greg Fraser is the cinematographer on this, and the cinematographer here is fabulous. And he is one of the contenders for the Oscars. And I, I think that Batman might get a few technical nominations next year. It depends what our year is like, but I can see it being up for you know score potentially maybe cinematography and definitely things like special effects and makeup because on a technical prowess level it is unimpeachable um but yeah let's talk about those oscars and the oscar goes to well it's that time of year again for film fans because whether or not they care about the oscars this is the one event they cannot ignore be it in the build-up or the aftermath, because on the Sunday 27th of March, it's the 94th Academy Awards ceremony 94th. taking place. 94th, yeah. We're six, too years, many. we're six years out from a whole 100. Imagine that. Oh, God. <laughs> mm. oh yeah, I'm imagining. Mm. Um, as we get closer, there's all these fantastic films nominated. You've got the likes of Dune and Nightmare Alley, West Side Story. You've got uh, Belfast and Power of the Dog, Coda, Don't Look Up, yeah, Drive My Car, King Richard, Licorice Pizza. Uh, all Those are just the ones in the running for Best Picture. There's a fantastic array of films, apart from horror, in the running for this, the most prestigious awards of this award season. And in this case, the Oscars have taken a curious attempt and they've given us the Oscars fan favorite in. <laughs> in which they asked film fans on Twitter to vote for their favourite film of the year and their favourite movie moment, which seems to resemble something they tried a few years ago, which was going to be the popular film category, something which they were mulling over 
funny enough, the same year Black Panther had Oscar buzz about it. Hmm. And it feels like a ploy of the Academy to try and appeal to the people who don't usually watch the ceremony, particularly those who were a bit vocal at how Spider-Man No Way Home wasn't nominated for Best Picture, which, personally, I like the film, but I, I'm a horror fan. I deal with the disappointment of not getting my favourites Oscar-nominated year in, year out. I mean... I think Andrew Garfield had the right response because he was asking about asked about this film not being nominated and he said, well, it's just satisfying enough that it's the sixth highest grossing film of all time, which, fair enough. He, He's a lovely boy. Can we just say he, Andrew Garfield is a lovely boy? Although it's a bit easy for him to say that when he is nominated. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, just that's for a, a different movie. <laughs> And oh, I love that he's nominated again. Personally, my pick for best actor, I think it's leaning towards Will Smith this year for that category. Um, what do you guys think? Uh, we starting with best actor. Ah, uh, why not? Yeah, okay. Um, all right. Well, looking over the the five nominees for um, actor in a leading role, I have actually seen all of them, so I can make a fairly. Inf- no, I'm lying. I have seen all of them except King Richard um, and Will Smith is favoured to win, it would seem. So the one who is who is most likely to win, it seems, and already picked up the BAFTA, I have not seen. Of the others, I think they're all very strong. Um, I thought Javier Bardem was um, very charming while also being a bit oily in being the Ricardos. Yeah. Being the um, Benedict Cumberbatch and the power of the dog um, is wonderfully strained and, you know, tells volumes through his eyes. Andrew Garfield, there he is in Tick, Tick, Boom. I feel you have to say it that way. Um, Does a really soulful job. And Denzel Washington in The Tragedy of Macbeth is, well, he's Denzel Washington. He's always amazing. And it's always interesting, I think, to see someone who you associate with particular roles trying something a little different. Although let's, let's not forget, Washington is no stranger to Shakespeare, having previous 30 years ago <laughs> um, appeared in Kenneth Branagh's uh, Much Ado About Nothing, playing the role of Don Pedro, a role I have played myself. <laughs> so of the four I've seen, they were all really impressive. If I was going to... I always hate the term who should win, because, you know, that's a completely undemocratic thing to say um you know whoever gets the most votes wins um if you disagree with it that's one thing so i think of it if i were a member of the academy whom would i vote for and of the ones i've seen i would probably vote for benedict cumberbatch so i'd be you know i'd be happy with any of them winning if i was to pick my own it would be cumberbatch i predict will smith russell what about you I, I think Will Smith is probably going to win this. I haven't seen King Richard yet. It's on my to watch it list. It sort of came and went in the cinema. It didn't seem to get a lot of time. It, I think it came out like that really chocker block October, November time when like Bond, Dune, Venom 2 and various other films were all out. So yeah. uh, if I was voting, I'd vote for Andrew Garfield because it is my favourite of the performances I've seen. I haven't seen a bad performance in the mix, but yeah, I think that Andrew Garfield is quite special in Tick, Tick, Boom. And um, 
yeah, I just, I, I'd love him to win it, but I think Will Smith will win it. And he's had the kind of career that I'm not going to object to him to win. He's, he's had a pretty impressive career and good for him. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, let's move on to the next big award, which is Best Actress, of which we have Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter, Penelope Cruz, Parallel Mothers, Nicole Kidman being The Ricardos, and Kristen Stewart for Spencer. Now, I'm just going to admit, I haven't seen a lot of these nominees throughout this year, and of the Best Actress, I've only seen uh, Spencer. Well, I So, a bit unfair, but I do, I do think Kristen should... Stewart was exceptional so I'd personally I'd love for her to be to get the win uh, but the way it's turning I think it seems like Jessica Chastain's gonna pick it up seems like she's getting a lot of buzz and a lot of other awards that it could follow suit but let's see how it goes um what do you think I have seen exactly one nominee in this category um, I am enjoying the uncertainty of this category. It's sort of everyone seemed to coalesce around a particular choice, whereas this one, it feels like it could be anyone. I mean, the BAFTA didn't help because they gave it to I forget her name. Someone not nominated. She was fantastic in After Love. Joanna Scanlon. Yeah, she mm, yeah. she was fantastic in After Love, and I'm very happy she won the BAFTA. But, but most of the BAFTA nominees in this category were different from the Oscars yeah. anyway. So it's so I've, I've enjoyed the chaos of this category <laughs> and I don't mind who wins, but I love that we live in a world where Olivia Coleman is a strong contender for her second Oscar. And that, that pleases me to no end. Her third Oscar. because she, she was up last year for supporting actress. for the no, but to, to win her second Oscar. Oh, I see. I'm always happy that we might get to the point where Olivia Coleman morphs into Meryl Streep, and I'm like, "This is great. <laughs> Carry on." Yes, as a um, as, as a fellow Norfolker, I uh, I do applaud Olivia Coleman. Um, I have also only seen one of these. I would I've only seen um, being the Ricardos, and I think Nicole Kidman is brilliant um, in that. That said, just to be you know a bit sniffy, she's already got one. <laughs> Olivia Coleman's already got one. <laughs> Penelope Cruz has already got one. Now, I've heard nothing but good things about Christian Stewart and Spencer. However, I will just say, purely personal level, Jessica Chastain is possibly my favourite actress. So, and she has been nominated multiple times. And I would love to be able to refer to Jessica Chastain, um, Academy Award winner. So I have not seen the eyes of Tammy Faye, um, but because she is um, a favourite actress of mine and just because of the buzz that she's getting, it looks like she is quite likely. So my prediction is that it will be Jessica Chastain. Well, let's move on to directing then. So our lineup for this year's directors are Kenneth Branagh for Belfast, Ryusuke Hamaguchi for Drive My Car, Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza, Jane Campion for The Power of a Dog and Steven Spielberg for West Side Story. Now, that's not a bad lineup. Um, I've seen three of these. So Belfast, Licorice Pizza, and West Side Story. Um, wasn't personally a fan of Belfast, but I liked Steven Spielberg's take on West Side Story and what Paul Thomas Anderson did for Licorice Pizza. And 
like Vincent with um, Jessica Chastain, I really like Paul Thomas Anderson. He's one of my favourite directors, and it'd be lovely to call him the Oscar winner, Paul Thomas Anderson, particularly for his directing. Um, I think this is going to be Jane Campion's year, in all honesty. So I think, yeah, I think, she, uh, funny enough, she's also the second woman to get a, se- a second nomination for Best Director in the whole history of it. Which is not something that should be yeah, not broken into. Not a fun statistic, not a fun yeah. thing for them to be able to. Hey, it's mm. the second time ever that a female director has been nominated for a second time. Progress! Slowly but surely. Uh, um, I think it's Campion's year. I'd love it to be Anderson, though. Um, Vincent, what about you? I was just checking, and actually, Jane Campion is the first woman to be nominated for directing twice. Um, oh, progress! Uh, yes! I, uh, I, I said that pretty haphazardly then. My bad. Not to worry. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it's sort of, but it, it, I mean, it, it underlines the point, as you say. Oh, yeah, <laughs> progress. Is this what it looks like? Um, I have seen um, four of the nominees. I have not seen Drive My Car, but I have seen The Power of the Dog, as well as West Side Story, Licorice Pizza and Belfast. I loved all of them. I mean, I thought Belfast was absolutely entrancing. Um, Licorice Pizza was um, I only saw in the past week. And it it's the first time I've come out of a Paul Thomas Anderson film feeling like I've had a warm hug. Um, uh, the Power of the Dog, um, I mentioned this previously, it feels like, um, <clears throat> the film that we want that we want, want to see after these two years of um, confinement and lockdowns because it's about gorgeous open spaces, so which are also tinged with sadness. So um, I think directorially it does a great job, and absolutely Steven Spielberg turns West Side Story into a cinematic extravaganza. Um, I would okay if I were voting, if I were a member. I would vote for Kenneth Branagh because, and it would be partly because I, I I really loved Belfast and I do think it's a brilliantly directed film. Um, it manages to be um, nostalgic without being sentimental. It manages to have this kind of hard edge to it and it's very confidently placed. However, I agree um, that it's, that I think Jane Campion is going to be, she might be the second woman sorry the first woman to have been nominated twice but i sus- but i believe she will be the third woman to win the academy award um for directing so yes i predict jane campion for the power of the dog progress how many years is, was it is this the 95th 96th this is the 94th 94 so three out of 94 feels yeah <sighs> <laughs> Um, I will fly the flag for Hamaguchi for Drive My Car. I think Drive My Car is... I'm amazed it's nominated because it's a three-hour film that's slow, meditative. It's about a uh, widowed actor who is dealing with his grief and loss by getting involved in a Chekhov production and developing a uh, not-quite-relationship, not-quite-friendship with his chauffeur, it's a really interesting film. It's quite beautiful. Um, but it it's I think it shows the progress that has happened with the Oscars. The while they do nominate stuff that 
frustrates me whilst they do miss stuff out that I want to be nominated, it does feel like we are trending in the right direction in terms of what films are up for Oscars. And I think all the nominees are very deserving this year. I would love Anderson to get an Oscar because he is a phenomenal director. And while I don't rate Licorice Pizza up there with my very the very best of what I think he can do, I still think it shows that he's a great director. I think Spielberg's work in West Side Story is great. I think that the Belfast and Power of the Dog, um, I like to varying degrees, but I again, I think they're both testaments to their directors. So whoever wins this, I'll probably be content with. But just because it's a three-hour Japanese film about grief and loss and Chekhov, I'm going to go give it to Hammer. Give it to uh, Hamaguchi for Drive My Car. Is that who you want to win or who you think will? I know that's who I want to win. I I suspect it's going to go to the power of the dog here. I suspect that it's they're going to go with that. Even if I don't know if it will win Best Picture, we'll get onto that. I think it'll get Best Director. And let's have a put our predictions for for the closing award of the night, the Best Picture. So, as we said, the nominees are Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, Drive My Car, June, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, and West Side Story. Now, of those, I haven't seen The Power of the Dog, Drive My Car, and Coda. Um, don't have Apple. Um, Drive My Car's been available if you can spend a tenner on Curzon. And I have no excuse for the power of the dog. I, it's just one which I haven't really felt in the mood for or made time for. Which more of a cat person. <laughs> well, I have seen cats twice. <laughs> the power yeah. Of cats. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing to say about the power of the dog: there's only a dog in it very briefly. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's not about a dog. Let's put it that way. That's false advertising. You will be annoyed. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, if I'm annoyed about that, imagine Tyrannosaur. Mm, Quite. (laughs) Um, Of the films I've seen, um, my personal favourite would probably be Dune, in all honesty. I love what Denny Villeneuve did, and it would be magnificent if it could come away with the best big, big prize. I don't think that's going to be the case, though. It's been interesting this Oscar season because Belfast was initially touted as, oh yeah, this one's definitely going to win. And then the power of the dog really stepped it up in the lead up to it. So it's been a bit of a push and pull between those two. But in very recently, it seems like Coda's coming up as a dark horse to potentially take it. Um, I think it's going to be between those three. But if I had to hazard a guess, I think the winner would be possibly the power of the dog. I think I'm going to put my weight behind that one, taking it. Um, what are your thoughts? Oh, I couldn't predict this one. So, yeah, The Power of the Dog has been this one that's been, like, um, has seemed to have the wind behind it for a long time. Belfast has gone up and down. Coda has this late surge. Um, I've seen all of these films by King Richard. Um, and... I like them to varying degrees. I actually don't think there's a bad film in the mix. I even, I'm even fine with Don't Look Up. I think it's baggy and long and uh, unfocused, but 
not a bad film in the way that film Twitter would have you believe. Um, yeah, so my favorite of the bunch is Dune, but I had a, a I think Nightmare Alley is pretty great, uh, and it's quite dark and cynical. And I like a film that's this dark and this cynical to win. I don't think it will because I don't think enough people have seen it, frankly. Um, I, I think that who do I think is going to win? Jeez. Um, I actually think it might be Coda. I actually think they might do their thing they sometimes do, which is where they split the directing and pictures. Since they mm. up the number of best picture nominees, they seem to split that more. It seems to be less there's momentum behind a film for picture and directing. So I would predict a um, Parasite slash Roma style upset. And that's not to compare Coda to either of those films. It is not as good as one and it is better than another. So yeah code is fine it's quite uh moving but it's also a bit manipulative and it's a bit yeah but I, i'm perfectly fine I, I have very little thoughts about coda beyond ah oh, that was good <laughs> that's it uh vincent who are you who do you think it's going to be and who do you want it to be well, I've seen eight of the nominees i haven't seen uh drive my car nor king richard um, have any of us seen King Richard? I've seen King Richard. It okay. was enjoyable. I had a nice time with it. Very much what you'd expect an Oscar nominee to be in the okay. traditional sense, but it was it. It was fine for what it was. So between us, we have seen all ten, uh, hmm. which is quite pleasing. Um, I mean, I'm going <laughs> to follow follow the uh, follow the crowd here, and if I were a member the academy and i were voting it would be dune i do think um, dune is a magnificent accomplishment and arguably a science fiction film has never won best picture i mean you could argue that um, the shape of water is kind of science fiction um, but not as overtly as dune um, so that's what i'd like what i will say is um, although i don't think dune will win um, if dune part two is as impressive as the first one and also finds itself up for nominations, then we might get a Return of the King situation. And maybe Dune Part 2 will pick up the awards that the first one doesn't. I will say, um, I know we're not going to go through all of the nom- of the categories, but I will say, I do think Dune is going to walk away with a few awards. I think it's going to get mm. sound. I think it will get score. Um, I think it will earn um, cinematography, speaking of Greg Fraser. Fraser. Um, and also production design and visual effects. So Dune, I think, will be um, could easily walk away with a good five awards. Um, I think The Power of the Dog will probably win, it seems most likely. Um, going back to the sense of there's a certain... It, similar to Belfast, Belfast has a kind of nostalgia for its period, and The Power of the Dog has a nostalgia for genre, um, a Western... Um, hasn't uh, the, the Western is a genre that sort of comes and goes. Arguably, last year's winner, Nomadland, is kind of a modern Western by being kind of a road movie. Um, and I can see the Academy wanting to embrace a beloved uh, genre with some contemporary 21st century um, aspects, um, the kind that piss off Sam Elliott. Um, so, you know, <laughs> fuck, so fuck you, Elliott. Um, so, yeah, I would like it to be Dune. I suspect it will be the power of the dog. That said, um, I can see it being Belfast as well. And I actually watched Coda 
earlier today um, as my breakfast movie. And it was something that I started off being like, yeah, okay, yeah, this looks lovely. And then I got more drawn into it. Um, and then there was this point towards the end of Coda and I was like, okay, you're kind of pushing it. Um, and then it turned that around and absolutely had me and I was in tears. Um, and by the end of it, I was in love with that film. So I'd be very happy if Coda won. I don't think it will. Um, but I will also say, <laughs> um, Russell, you criticised Coda for being manipulative. Steven Spielberg once said, if you don't like being manipulated, don't watch movies. All films <laughs> are manipulative. The question is, I think, how effective they are at it. In the case of Coda, I thought it was massively effective. Uh, however, I predict the power of the dog will win. Which would be Netflix's first Best Picture winner. And they've been trying for a long time. Yeah. They've been trying for the last five years. Um, and I'll say in Coda, I think I'm going to rewatch it this week. I think because I watched it like halfway, when it first came out last year, I watched, I was like, oh, this is fine. And now that it's got more awards and more buzz, I think I should rewatch it and see if I just need to give it a little bit more time. Um, yeah, I I think it's also going to win Best Supporting Actor. I mean, we're not doing all the categories, but I think it's going to win Best Supporting Actor. So it'll get at least one Oscar. Yeah, I think mm. it will too. I also think it, Coda will get adapted screenplay. And while PTA, I don't think it's going to get directing, he, after winning the BAFTA, I think he's a shoe-in to get original screenplay for Licorice Pizza. Oh, I would have thought that would have been Belfast's one because that seems to be Again, going favourably. Yeah, could just as easily go to... Belfast so mm. yeah, that's that's a bit of a toss of coin on that one um, animated feature is a weird one now we've all now <laughs> all seen the Mitchells versus the Machines and while I didn't like it quite as much as you two right calling it your top film of last year I did really enjoy it um, I it looks like the likely winner the predicted winner of this is Encanto mm. which I find a bit surprising I wasn't blown away by Encanto Having said that, I do remember it looks amazing. So from a purely animated perspective, I guess it makes sense. Encanto is, you know, it's stunningly animated. That said, I'm much of the nominees. I've not seen Flea, um, but of them all, I think I liked Raya the Last Dragon the most. Flea is exceptional. And the fact that it's nominated for animated feature, documentary and international feature film is magnificent that's spread across those three but that's been so embraced <clears throat> i would like it to take at least one of those categories but i think you're right that animated feature is going to go to encanto that's really the buzz for that has really stepped up um yeah my so my heart wants it to be the mitchell's versus the machines my head says probably encanto because encanto feels like a cultural moment that I don't quite understand fully myself. Um, we rewatched some of Encanto today and I still think it's a perfectly good film that doesn't quite click with me. And I think there's, uh, following the tracks of animation, there's an interesting uh, divergence between Encanto and the Mitchells as machines and that they're the two kinds of animation right now. One is clean and crisp and slick and looks beautiful and is everything a computer can do. And then you've got the Mitchell's first machine, which throws in 2D animation and puppetry and live action and stuff within it. And so it becomes almost, well, not quite punk, but it's it's animation that's kind of 
playing with the rules, playing with what an animation can and should be. And so there's always that kind of uh, conflict going on. Last year, it was Soul versus Wolfwalkers, and Wolfwalkers is this delightful 2D animation on top of static backgrounds, and Soul is, again, all the amazing stuff Pixar can do, and it looks beautiful, and it is, again, feels quite clean to me and quite this is as good as a computer can do things. Um, and my thing on Flea, I haven't seen Flea, but I think because it's nominated across those three categories, it kind of is going to end up uh, counting against it because I think its fans will vote it for one and the other and the other. And if it was just one of them, I think it might send a chance to upset. Like, I think the documentary I want to win is Summer of Soul because it, it was one of my favorite films of last year. And the international film I want to win is the worst person in the world. And I think it might be driving my car, but I'd love it to be the worst person in the world because that's the best film I've seen that's been released this year. I saw it last year at the London Film Festival. I feel kind of a bit smug because everyone was like, no, they wanted to see it and I got a ticket for it. Um, yeah, so as much as I think, from what I can gather from Flea, from yourself, James, from everyone who's seen it, that's a remarkable film. I think because it's nominated in these three categories that are almost the kind of, other categories so that those films don't cross over into the mainstreams particularly and they should because the international feature films tend to be the best films of the night documentary tends to be the most interesting films of the night and animation is like the best of it of its genre Uh, but i think because flea is in all three of those it'll be hard for it to break out in any of them Mm. um and just to close things off, um, just I think West Side Story is going to get at least one win because Ariana DeBose seems to have Best Supporting Actress locked in. Absolutely, and yeah. It's a shame there's not a Best Choreography um, award because I think West Side Story will also take that. But that would also be a great award to, to give the love to action films as well as to musicals and because that's, that's an undersung talent like stunt work, which deserves to be recognised by the awards bodies. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, you said that they had tried earlier to do a Best Popular Oscar mm-hmm. award. I mean, I'm not against such a such a thing. I actually think there should be more awards. I think we should reward stunt work. I think we should reward voice acting, say, and motion capture acting. All of it should be rewarded. And, and I feel that, I mean, there is this, discussion happening because eight of the awards will not be presented live and the BAFTAs I think did two I think there was two BAFTAs that didn't get onto the screen properly in their in full form casting and something else but uh, they got like a snippet of their speeches there might be more than two I don't know there were more than two yeah okay so yeah and for my money I know I think it's just have loads of awards they should just reward everyone every department should get an award that's just what I feel. I mean, there are often complaints that the Oscar ceremony goes on for too long, and that's why it has <clears throat> poor viewing figures, and that's why some of these awards are not being presented live. It's like, oh, well, let's uh, speed things up. No, 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 no. You speed things up by taking out all the guff in the middle. When the first, <laughs> as we said, it's near, the Oscars are nearly 100 years old. The first Academy Awards ceremony in 1929 took 15 minutes to hand out all the awards. Just, just do it. Just give them to them yeah. and be like, "Here's your yeah. winners." Yeah, and like, and so the next award is it? Okay, yes, it. next. I think that would be the way to do it. Just to mean the show could be 
I mean, on the one hand, I love the glitz and glamour of the Oscars. I will be staying up all night to watch it. Um, it's quite nice for me because uh, the Oscars have actually happening on my birthday. So uh, it's a nice little uh, gift, as it were. Um, due to the time difference, of course, it'll be the early hours, the 28th. But anyway, um, so I, as much as I enjoy all of that, I think it could be a bit more efficient. Um, yeah. I mean, just quickly running through, speaking of efficiency, we've said... Ariana DeBose for supporting actress, I'd say Cruella for costume design. And um, uh, I think Tick Tick Boom for editing and makeup and hairstyling. The Eyes of Tammy Faye, although could just as easily be House of Gucci. Hey! Um, I agree with you, Russell. I think Summer of Soul for documentary. Um, I'd like to, I like it. I think it could well be No Time to Die for, from No Time to Die for original song. And yes, and uh, that and that's all of them. But yeah, it's. Uh, I look forward to it. I think it's going to be an interesting night, and in some respects, not entirely predictable. Mm. I like the uncertainty, particularly with the main prize. That there's agreed. Uh, yeah, because it often feels like it coalesces around one film or at most two films, and best picture could go to a trio of films right now. Or maybe Ooh. one that comes out, like maybe Don't Look Up will win. <laughs> you know what would be amazing? It's happened in other categories, but never with Best Picture. Imagine if it was a tie. Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> now that would be history making. Speaking of history, before we leave the Oscars, would you gentlemen care for a little Rotten Tomatoes round? Yes. Go for okay. it. Now, um, I was going to go back in time, but I thought let's not uh, go on too long with this. So what I've done <laughs> is I've got the um, Rotten Tomatoes scores for the last three winners of Best Picture. So Nomadland, Parasite and Green Book. I'd like you, gentlemen, to give me you, what you believe are the Rotten Tomatoes critic scores for those three films. We'll start most recently with Nomadland, I'll come to Russell first. What is the Rotten Tomatoes score for Nomadland? 94. Okay, Russell's going with 94. As always, thanks to the sequelizers for this little game. James, what do you think for Nomadland? I'm gonna guess 82. 82 is the, is the anticipation, okay. Next, we have Parasite. We'll come to James first. What do you think Parasite has on Rotten Tomatoes? 96. Okay. Russell? 97. Okay. Keeping it close, are we? <clears throat> then Green Book. What do you think, Russell? 79. Okay. And James, Green Book. 58. Okay. Well, we have a, a very clear winner um, who was a, a clean sweep, actually. Uh, Russell was closest on all of them. <laughs> Because so Russell, so for Nomadland, <clears throat> Russell said 94 and James said 82. 
and the actual score for Nomadland is 93%. So close. Yeah, so close. And speaking of close, um, on um, Parasite, you both undershot. Russell said 97, James said 96, Parasite is 98%. So there are two. This is a pretty good film. Yeah, there are two percent of reviews that don't rate Parasite more than three out of five. <laughs> Whatever. And then Green Book, um, Russell said seventy nine. James significantly undershot with fifty eight. Oh, no. Green Book has a score of seventy seven percent. Wow. Yeah. Well, it won I, the Toronto Audience Award. I believe that year. So oh, okay. I think before it won, it was quite popular, and then it won. I was like, oh no, no, this shouldn't have won. I agree. Yeah, it's a kind of there's. It's a funny thing with some best picture winners, they win, and then somehow they become un. It's uncool to rate them highly. Whereas if they didn't win, they probably or weren't even nominated. They continue to be thought of highly. I think the same was true of A Beautiful Mind. Um. Uh, it's like it's a, yeah, beautiful mind it's it's fine but is it best picture material who knows but yeah um so yes that's uh we should we shall see we shall see how things play out on the 27th slash 28th of march we lost by the way but you know i'm sorry no this, there's a mistake moonlight you guys won best picture moonlight won. Come on, this is not a joke this is not a joke i'm afraid they read the wrong thing this is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Moonlight, Best Picture. And from a celebration of films to a more specific celebration, we've got Fright Fest Glasgow, which ha- just happened. And our man on the street, Vincent, was there in person. So, Vincent, would you like to inform us about this year's Fright Fest Glasgow? No, I don't fancy it. Oh, all right, I will. <laughs> uh, man on the street, I've never been called that before. Um, I quite like it. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> ah, good. Okay, well, um, it's worth noting, of course, that Fright Fest Glasgow 2020 was one of the last film festivals that took place before covid um, and in the past two years, film festivals have turned online a lot. So it was really special, I think, that um, Glasgow Fright Fest came back with a vengeance, screening 12 films over three days at the beautiful Glasgow Film Theatre, many of which were premieres. Now, the festival offered folk horror, vampire comedy, zombie apocalypse and macabre families. And there were also some lively introductions from the organisers and the fest- and the filmmakers themselves. Now, what did we have? So originally, um, the original lineup was changed in following world events, and the first film was Night's End, um, which is um, described as a sort of claustrophobic shut-in horror, um, directed by Jennifer Reeder, who previously delivered um, Knives and Skin, which was at um, Fright Fest in 2019, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, I annoyingly missed Night's End, but um, I didn't hear good things about it. Now, the following day was quite varied. There was the, um, um, and it was the first, when we started the sort of the Irish aspect of the festival, because we started off with Let the Wrong One In, a gloriously silly and gleefully gory horror comedy. Um, 
Now, if you've ever had a difficult relationship with a sibling, just count yourself lucky it's not as awkward as that in this movie. Because <laughs> if your dissolute brother or sister or pet or relative of any kind comes back and has had apparently a rough night on the town, but happens to have fangs and an allergy to sunlight, yeah, they're the wrong one. Don't let them in. <laughs> um, yeah, that, so the yeah, let the wrong one in was um, a lot of fun. Um, following that, the Irish contingent continued over the course of the weekend. One of the highlights of the festival was You Are Not My Mother. Um, now, this is a moody, crawling, atmospheric, but melancholic folk horror. And it blended familial troubles, mental health and some seriously untrustworthy bodies. Um, so many kind of teenage concerns that really um, came across so very well. Um, and there was yet more um, Irish horror with Mandrake, um, which was a clammy and atmospheric folk horror, um, although I was less enamoured with it as it went on. And then the scariest film for me of the entire festival was The Cellar, which closed the festival on the Saturday night. Um, now, this is what I like to think of as a drip feed delivery of horror. There were gothic spaces, occult terror, malevolent mathematics which is not something i've said before and it, i tell you the cellar takes um a lot of standard um genre tropes particularly of kind of a cult and um haunted house horror but gave it a thoroughly modern setting which i was really impressed by and it's got one of the most <laughs> visions of hell i have ever seen so, yeah, that was, for me, um, a particular um, highlight. So, um, so that was a lot of the Irish contingent, but um, there was also um, an English film with Homebound, um, which was a tense and taut um, a mystery of pedophobia and isolation and domestic horror. Um, there was uh, the completely bonkers Wormwood Apocalypse, which is kind of a blend of Mad Max and Day of the Dead, um yeah so yeah ac proper action horror there um there was um an, one of the most um, acclaimed films was freaks out which is kind of which is an italian film described as schindler's list meets fantastic four now i didn't actually see that one because i was slightly put off by the being over it was over two hours long but i've heard the time from that as we were saying earlier about the batman absolutely flew by um so that is certainly one to check out um, and there's fantastic um, Some Like It Rare, uh, which um, earned my particular affection because uh, the lead character in that was called Vincent. Um, but it's also, I think, the wittiest and gorest, goriest French farce of marital troubles, social satire and cannibalism you're ever likely to see. Um, and uses the gag of Iranian pork really well. <laughs> um, and then... There were a few other, there were a few, um, I'm doing this by nationality, um, some American offerings as well. The Cloud So High um, was a kind of a slow burn and quite unsettled um, exploration of, um, of stalking and home invasion. It brought in aspects of to toxic masculinity and white privilege, PTSD, familial abuse, incel culture, with some very arty-farty visuals. They're not entirely successful. Um, one, a film that I was especially looking forward to 
was a film called The Ledge, um, which was a survival horror. Now, what could sound more, what could be more gripping and terrifying than a survival horror with one woman trying to escape four men after a climbing trip goes wrong? What could be more gripping and terrifying? Answers include trying to cross the road in light traffic, cross cooking pasta in a pan that overflows, and wondering if you should tell the people beside you in the cinema to stop talking. Ah, <laughs> oh, the, the ledge was it, it. I mean, there was so much laughter at the ledge. Pretty much every line of dialogue had the audience roaring, and it wasn't intentional um, on the part of the filmmakers. I mean, this is a film that quite literally drops off a cliff. It is so it plummets down due to its convolutions and excessive backstories. Unfortunately, after that, everything was up um, because another great highlight was Monstrous. Now, this was a, an ingenious, creepy and deeply moving delve into dreamlike imagery and kind of the blurred, Im line, the blurred lines between perception and reality. It's set in the 1950s with Christina Ricci as a mother fleeing what one assumes is an abusive relationship. So she and her young son set up home in a remote farmhouse and then they get visits from a monster in the nearby lake, as you do. Now, what I think is especially brilliant about Monstrous um, is that it dis dis displays something that I call critical nostalgia. Um, and this is presenting a historical period, that kind of like something like something that, that Mad Men does. Um, and also there's a whole subgenre of spy films I'm currently researching, which does this as well. And essentially what this, this technique does is it presents a previous era in all its sort of stylish and ideological glory, but also demonstrating that these times were just as fucked up as nowadays. Um, so yeah, that was my experience of um, Fright Fest. It was overall a really good time, as always. Um, the, while the films are a lot of fun, so are all the people. And I got to meet, see some lovely folks there, including Mike Munzer and Louise Blaine, um, as well as the delightful people who run uh, Fright Fest. Um, so yeah, it was a really good time. And of the films that were shown, I definitely recommend Monstrous, You Are Not My Mother, um, and The Cellar, especially. Um, and avoid the ledge like, well, a cliff face. <laughs> Have I sold you on any of them? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to see You Are Not My Mother... And all the Irish stuff sounded quite interesting. I, yeah, I think Ireland is quite a fun spot for folk horror. Um, and uh, Let the Wrong One In. I, I kind of only am interested in vampire movies that are funny right now. Like, I don't. So, um, and I, I managed to see two of these um, for uh, Moving Pictures Film Club. Uh, Tim Common's site. So I saw Wormwood Apocalypse and I haven't seen the first one. So it was kind of confusing, but also it was quite propulsive and fun. And uh, yeah, I had fun of it. And then I also saw Freaks Out, which uh, while I think some people have slightly overpraised, I do think is a really good film. And I think there's stuff to it that's really interesting. Um I think the description of it as Schindler's List meets Fantastic Four is unfortunate because I think there's probably a better way to describe this film. Uh, but it, uh, yeah, I think Freaks Out is worth watching. I think Freaks Out is is a 
interesting watch. James, what about you? Um, I've seen the majority of these films. I just have The Ledge and Some Like It Rare to <laughs> check out. Oh yeah, Some Like It Rare sounds great. And <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought it was quite a good lineup. My favourite of the lot was Freaks Out, which, yeah, that Schindler's List meets Fantastic Four tagline does not do it favours. Um, maybe X-Men meets, I don't know, Hellboy? Just Schindler's List. Bastards? Well, possibly that. Schindler's List is just the wrong one to try. Yeah, and it's Inglorious Bastards, but with superpowers. That's probably okay, the best way to describe it. it. There we go. Sort of like if the Inglorious Bastards had liberated the concentration camp where Eric Lencher was held. Yeah, we've got we've got the That's X-Men opener, but then it, it's Brad Pitt who comes in and saves him. <laughs> <laughs> and on top of that, you got a future-seeing Nazi leader who plays piano covers of Radiohead and Guns N' Roses. I which didn't, you know, there was an odd element. <laughs> <laughs> I dug it. I. <laughs> it was That's... a bit Hellboy, it, and not necessarily in a positive way. I like Hellboy, but it was a bit like, like, I don't know. I I think the bits of Freaks that worked for me was the fact that everyone but the Nazis were really complicated characters, and the Nazis were just Nazis, and that's it. <laughs> uh, yeah, they were Nazis, but. Maybe I shouldn't want, you know, three-dimensional Nazis. I just want them to be cartoonish, but yeah. If you want three-dimensional Nazis, Schindler's List will provide that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You Are Not My My Mother was also very good. It felt like a gripping blend of fairy tale folklore and social realism. Mm. So you had the changeling myth approach through lens of mental illness and bullying. And it was a really good surprise. Um, I also really liked The Cellar. I thought it was um, pretty unsettling as a family move into a creepy house and deal with a hellish cellar and, oh God, mathematics, as you said. (laughs) I knew that was going to come for us in the worst possible way. (laughs) Although, actually, to follow that up, one of the most tense moments in that film involves counting. Yeah. Yeah, so that does really work. Um, I thought it was a good lineup. Um, Night's End, understandable there. Fright Fest had to last minute, make a last minute change, and fair enough to Shudder for providing Night's End. Wasn't personally a fan of how it all unfolded. Um, also, there's a bizarre Michael Shannon appearance in that film, which I, he's acting with his wife, which it looked felt like it was filmed during lockdown, which kind of makes sense because it doesn't feel like the kind of thing Michael Shannon would appear in. Feels like uh, one of those odd notes you get in a career when you're looking back on it. <laughs> but I thought, um, I thought it was a strong lineup of what they had, and it's going to be interesting what they have for their. Um, London set um, festival later on in the year. Yeah. You, do you guys hope to be there in August? Mm. In some uh, form, yeah. I'll go to maybe some of it, if not all of it. I, yeah, I, yeah. Hopefully, yeah. I'll do it all this time. Mm. Yeah, I'm hoping to go again. It's just let's see how it goes, and um, but my hopes are to arrive and do another full 
full festival experience. Um, let's just see what the future holds. The whole hog. <laughs> exactly. Sleep be damned. We're still trying to figure out what happened. When did you last hear from her? She left to bring her to school. Is everything okay? Has she gone missing before? Not in a long time. So that was the latest horror festival. There's more coming up throughout the year. And of course, we will talk about them as they come and go. Uh, We talk a lot about what's current and new and upcoming, but we thought we'd take a little bit of time to give you a couple of, uh, let's say, older picks. Let's say pre-1970s horrors gems that you should go off, seek out and watch because there is a world of fabulous horrors out there to go off and pick up. yeah, so we've each picked one film that we love, that we've discovered, and we think you should go off and discover as well. Um, I'm going to start with Vincent, because Vincent's got the one that I think uh, people are most likely to have seen, but it's also, frankly, one of the greatest horrors ever made. So, Vincent, what have you picked? I have picked <clears throat> The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920. I am literally going back over 100 years to one of the earliest horror films. Now, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is part of the German Expressionist movement, um, directed by Robert Weiner um, during a period um, of um, filmmaking in Germany post-war when, you know, essentially the German film industry was experimenting. I mean, this is the silent era, so pretty much all film was experimental at the time. And uh, with their, you know, uh, and with the German um, industry and economy pretty much destroyed by the war, uh, the film industry was one area that could at least develop, not least because of, and over the course of the 1920s, inflation led to um, an increased demand for film. You couldn't exact, because money would rapidly not um, be worth very much, so might as well spend it quickly, and suddenly there was something you could spend it on quickly. Now, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is a story within a story, as it features a young man who is in an asylum, and he recounts the tale of Dr. Caligari, who controlled a somnambulist, a sleepwalker, to kidnap and murder. Or did he? Since this is a story all being related, we have unreliable narrator. Furthermore, the visual style is entirely unreliable because this is an expressionist film. The German expressionism is hugely influential over horror and science fiction. It's the kind of thing where even if you haven't seen it, you kind of have because the influence is so great. If you've seen um, Bram Stoker's Dracula, then the influence of Nosferatu is all over it. If you've seen Blade Runner, then you've seen the influence of Metropolis. And if you've seen something like Shutter Island or The Ninth Configuration, anything set in an asylum with a slightly creepy psychiatrist, then you've seen the influence of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Um, now, it, some, now, if you go back and look at the films like these, they can look quite dated, 
be due to being silent and therefore the acting style is very physical and very exaggerated. Furthermore, the production design is extremely exaggerated. The, um, the, you know, the walls of the city, they don't look like walls, they look like, um, they look like sets. Um, and of course, um, the music, because there's no dialogue, the music has to communicate a great deal. Now, I've seen this film a couple of times, um, generally because I was teaching it. I've taught courses on early cinema, and so um, that's required me to familiarise myself with early cinema, like this, like the, uh, uh, like the Battleship Potemkin and such like. Um, but even though it's very much of its time, I still find this film disturbing because it puts the distorted images of the mind on screen. Now, imagine seeing a nightmare on screen and it follows a kind of logic, but it's a logic that is imposed. And so it might be external. In order to understand dream logic, we've got to sort of interpret it. We've got to say, well, this relates to this and this relates to that. Um, and therefore it's, it, creating this idea of we're trying to control that which is not controlled. And I think that's like the experience of watching this film. Furthermore, it's also eerily beautiful. Uh, the images are haunting, but they're so well designed, you have to marvel at them. And these distorted visuals express the dubious perceptions. So it's not only a nightmare, it's also a kind of madness. Now I mentioned the period. This is also the period when psychoanalysis had entered culture, um, not least popular culture. And so the ideas of Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung were, had achieved this kind of cultural penetration. Um, and the developing medium of cinema lent itself steadily to the interpretation of dreams, madness, and memory. And I think that's why this particular film endures when so many of the silent period are largely forgotten. The cabinet of Dr. Caligari continues to show us the mind on screen, which is arguably one of the things cinema is particularly best at. So if you want to see something that is pre-horror, pre-1970, hugely influential on the development of the genre and on cinema more generally, and that perhaps shows a little vision into how the mind actually could be projected, see what I did there? Then I do recommend highly the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which can actually be viewed in its entirety on YouTube. So, hey, no excuse. I take it you guys have seen it. Yes. Uh, the first time I saw it was um, at a indie music club night at university, and it was being projected on the wall behind me. So I watched about half of it that way, and then I watched it properly thereafter and sat down, and yeah, it's pretty, it's something. First time I saw it, I was on my laptop. I think it was about 2014. I was trying to try some new horror films for Halloween. And that was quite the lovely discovery. So from that to James, what is your pick? What is your golden oldie that you've brought out from the archive for us? Well, for my pick, I'm going back 101 years to a silent film from Sweden, 1921's The Phantom Carriage. Now, from director Victor, Victor Hörström, this has quite the enticing premise, where the last person to die each year 
must spend the next year working tireless, tirelessly for death, driving a carriage to pick up the souls of everybody who has died throughout the year until it's the next person's turn. And what you got is this gothic and haunting tale about our, about our sins, regrets of our past, and it's brought to life thanks to such atmospheric direction. You've got a film which it feels like we shouldn't care for this horrendous lead. We shouldn't believe in his character arc, which we know what's going to happen, which we've seen many times over. But the tremendous performance, the affecting aftermath, the where it goes, it's just wondrous proof that that it it's worked, that it doesn't matter what's going to happen, but how it happens. And this is a film which seems to have inspired The Shining, particularly when there's a scene where you got the ma- male character uh, breaking through a wooden door with an axe in order to reach his wife and child for not pleasant reasons, let's say. Um, it's an excellent film, which is available to rent, but it's also in the public domain. You can find it on YouTube. I believe it's on the Criterion Collection in America. Um, there's no excuse. Please check it out. It's a great little film that deserves more eyes on it. It's not, not one what? I've seen, and so I've I've I had a look at it before we recorded, and it sounded great. It does sound mm. a really great film. Yeah, I've not seen it either, but I have added it to my playlist on YouTube. So yeah. Excellent. Thanks for the recommendation. Uh, no, I'm glad. Uh, Russell, what's your choice for pre-1970s? So my choice, and I'm going to go about 40 years ahead of you guys. Uh, this is one that I discovered thanks to the always wonderful evolution of horror during their occult season. And there's always three or four films a season that I haven't seen. And most of those I wouldn't have actually heard of or like really processed I should watch them. Uh, This one is Sidney Hayer's Night of the Eagle, or its alternative name, Burn Witch Burn. Um, (laughs) And the description I'll give you is the one on IMDb, which is a woman who may be a witch defends her husband from forces attempting to harm him. And this was a wonderful surprise to watch. It was, it's 19 minutes. It's a sprightly affair. I have a thing that I really like uh, domestic witch stories. I really like the idea of the occult in the home setting and that that is played with a lot here. Uh, and there is the non-believer figure who is, of course, the husband who doesn't believe in all this stuff. And so his reactions to it, in fact, make things worse, as they always do in these stories. And I do enjoy a great deal stories about non-believers who are put through the ringer because of their actions, because they are a non-believer. I'm not saying I'm a believer, but I enjoy stories of hubris and downfalls caused by people's hubris. Uh, This is very entertaining. Uh, It's a bit silly, as all of them are, but it also is a bit unnerving. There's a bit at the end that I found quite unnerving. I won't give it away because, you know, I want you to watch this. Um, The cast is great. The performances are great. It's all performed in the 1960s style, so it's not heightened or anything it's all this is was a terrific watch and if you're not listening to the evolution of horror you should because they'll give you a ton of films to watch like this i'd never heard this film i believe it's on youtube i think that's how i saw it um but if not it's on amazon to rent 
Um, yeah, and this is definitely absolutely worth your time because uh, you'll have fun of it. And you also might be a bit unnerved by the ending. The ending does have some imagery that's kind of like startling. But yeah, this is my pick. I thought we go slightly uh, newer with some talking, but a film you've unlikely to have seen. And this, and we'll do this again. We'll do another dive back into pre-70s films because there are so many films out there to watch. I mean, there's more every single year, but there are so many films out there to watch from before the 70s, and most of us don't really watch them. One point is that most uh, many of us will, of course, encounter um, films via streaming services, which tend to favour the newer stuff. Um, one of the interesting things is if you go, if you search on like Netflix or Prime for older films, um, you know, like you know, search pre-1970, um, you will find them there, but they will often, what you often find is they are ones you've not heard of. One of the nice things about um, Disney Plus is because they've got the whole back catalogue of um, Fox material, Fox um, uh, product, then they can put, they've got a whole bunch of much older stuff as well as, of course, the Disney's own cat- back catalogue. Um, I saw them, The Night of the Eagle much for the same reason as you, Russell, because I heard it discussed on the evolution of horror and I thought it was eerie and disturbing, um, this you know, depiction of hysteria and occultism and the clashes of genders and beliefs. But what I especially enjoyed about it is I found it to be persuasively ambiguous. Um, many a horror will, it works in terms of being unsettling by saying, it might be this, it might be that, it might be this, it might be that. And usually by the end, it's clarified one way or the other. Um, but part of the fun, I think, of the horror journey is sticking with that ambiguity and seeing to what extent, how long, how long do we, does it keep us guessing? Are you familiar with this one, James? Um, I actually haven't seen that one. I do go through films for the evolution of horror as well, but I am not always able to catch up. I think the closest I've been to actually going through all the films in a season was the zombie season, where I think it was just a couple like Death Becomes Her and The Beyond, which I couldn't get to watch. But uh, there's always a couple which I aren't available to watch. But that one I really should make the time for, both because Evolution of Horrors and their wonderful discussion and you guys and your wonderful recommendations. And I mean, if you've seen Night of the Demon, you should definitely see Night of the Eagle because Mm. they deal with similar subject matters and they're both, as Vincent said, effective in their ambiguity. Although, of course, Night of the Demon ends with a giant demon, so, you know, (laughs) and starts with... Does it start with it? I can't remember if it starts. Definitely, at the end, it all ambiguity is lost. Yeah, well... Um, Night of the Hamster, I don't recommend. I, I, I just think that sounds a bit silly. <laughs> burn, witch, burn. So, another old recommendation. We've come to our something old, something new, something not a movie portion. Vincent, give us something old. What have you got for us, Vincent? Okay, I am going to stick with Horror of the Mind and take us back to... 1990, when I was but a wee lad of 11, and 
you two were even younger. Um, <laughs> Flatliners is a Flatliners is a film of various beautiful people at the time. It stars Kiefer Sutherland, William Baldwin, Julia Roberts, Kevin Bacon, Oliver Platt. Yes, Oliver Platt is a beautiful man. I will hear no word against the Platt. Um, it's directed by the late and sometimes great Joel Schumacher. And our heroes are a bunch of high-flying medical students who in the best tradition of Doctors Caligari, Frankenstein, Moreau, Jekyll, Banner and others, decide to push the boundaries of medicine and knowledge because reasons. They stop each other's hearts so as to touch death, to experience the afterlife and bring people back to life. Yay! Now, I will say this film is preposterous and often nonsensical. And it's not because of the premise. Now, I am fine with far-fetched premises. I mean, hell, we've talked for hours about um, a guy who tries to solve his own inner problems by dressing up as a bat. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's all a bit absurd. Um, but what makes Flatliners so silly is that it is massively over-stylized. The locations are unnecessarily gothic. I mean, where do these medical students attempt practice their um, weird experiments. They do so in what appears to be a ruined church. And the university where they are studying also seems to have all of its um, medical uh, <clears throat> lectures and, um, pract and practical assessments, shall we say, practical sessions, also in buildings that have clearly been converted from the catacombs of Rome. Um, the performances are very pantomime. And I, Kiefer Sutherland, um, especially, he seems to be channeling his character from The Lost Boys. He often crouches down over bodies in a somewhat vampirish way. <laughs> um, and there is so much guilt and angst affecting all of them. There are weird flashbacks, near-death experiences, limbo moments that always involve running through open fields um, that are wreathed in mist. Because, well, what's the point of a field if there's no mist, I suppose? Um, and there's this ominous hooded child Ooh, has something run out of Don't Look Now. But even better is all of this is lathered in garish filters and ample wind. It is genuinely remarkable that whatever is going on, there is always wind making everyone's hair flutter. Flutter hair, flutter hair. I'm standing here in my apartment. The hair is fluttering. I'm standing by the river. My hair is fluttering. I'm here in some sort of limbo afterlife. My hair is fluttering. Now, despite all of this making the film thoroughly bonkers and very dated, I would still recommend it, honest, as an effectively haunting and disturbing horror film. It's a horror film of mind, guilt and hubris. It goes into traumatic events. It's uh, to do with confronting troubled memories and also to do with being your own victim and victimizer. Now, we often talk about what counts as horror. This film is horror, this film isn't. And personally, I think a key aspect of horrordom is victimhood. Flatliners explores issues of victimization and self-flagellation and it offers a rather extreme form of therapy. 
perhaps it's you know comparable to Inception. Now it doesn't have the discipline or the tightly wound precision of Inception, but it does have some serious style and some very noticeable haircuts. I cannot speak to the remake because I have not seen it, but the original Flatliners was one I'd sort of seen trailed on television for years and then finally watched it um, just within the past year. And I thought, you know what? That's a golden oldie that you may well have heard of and is worth a look. Either of you seen it? I have not. Um, it's, it's kind of on my list, but uh, the thing I like the most about it is it has a great joke in uh, pop star, never stop, never stopping. I think it is where one of the guys likes a flatline. And so it cuts to a brief flash of him flatlining. It's very funny. I have seen it, but (laughs) I'm struggling to recall a lot of it, which I didn't dislike it, but I wasn't enamoured with it. So, um, yeah, I think that sums up my feelings. Um, Oh, that's vague for me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there we go. Russell, tell us about something new. Well, I'm going to tell you about two something news. I'm going to cheat and give two, but that's because there are a pair of mother and daughter stories about the daughter coming to terms of something quite fantastical and supernatural happening to her. Yes, of course, I'm going to compare Turning Red with Hellbenders. Ha <laughs> uh, One is a charming Pixar animation, the best they've been since Coco. It's just dropped in Disney Plus and it is delightful. It's about a 13-year-old girl who turns into a red panda, a giant red panda, it must be said, when she's feeling angry, sad, excited, or happy, or any of that. When she feels strong emotions, she turns into a red panda. It's very charmingly put together. It's got some idiots on the internet saying stupid things about it, which is always fun. And <laughs> it uh, feels like Pixar's ambitions are finally clicking with the films they make. It's... it's satisfying uh use of so many people's talents yeah i i was quite taken with turning red i've watched it a couple of times now because my daughter really likes it so mm-hmm. yeah the turning red has just dropped from disney plus and then you can head over to shudder for hellbender now hellbender is a film i caught last year as part of my coverage of Grimfest, and i adored it it was the best new horror like horror like either released last year or sorry, a festival of last year and it is about a, a teen girl coming to terms with her family's ties to witchcraft and the power that is within her and it is wonderful it's it's made by essentially one family they write it direct to edit it star in it so it's low budget and all those things that come with the Adams family is the name of the family that make it and great name for <laughs> making horror and it is dark and funny and upsetting and has great music and is kind of punky and I adore Hellbender and it is uh, one of those times that Shudder has something that's really worth your time like I sometimes question my subscription to Shudder because they sometimes don't put great films on their service but this is one of those times when they have something really great on this is under 19 minutes so it's a nice sprightly gem and you can like, you know, queue up the two, maybe go Hellbender first, then go into Turning Red. I don't know. 
And they're two very different types of films. One is very few people working at low budget. Uh, you can see its indie roots all the way through. The other one is a big Pixar film that's bizarrely been released straight to Disney Plus. And I don't quite understand with it why it's not had some kind of cinema release, but that's a conversation for another day or for my own podcast. <laughs> yeah, so do this double, do this mother and daughter coming to terms with supernatural powers and you'll have a great time. James, what's your something? Well, actually, before we go that, have you two seen either of these films? I haven't seen Turning Red, but I adored Hellbender when I saw it for Fantasia Fest last year. God, it was on quite a few festivals. It went through. Year. It didn't do Fright Fest. It did like about oh. five or six other festivals. Oh, I'm curious, but I loved that one. Um, what about you, Vincent? I other way around for me. I have not seen Hellbender. I have seen Turning Red, which I adored as well. I thought it was like big meets the Incredible Hulk meets Metamorphosis. It's I thought Turning Red is super smart, super cute, super fluffy, and it's truly magical. Um, and the way it combines growing pains, familial pressures, and the power of friendship, fandom, and song was great. But I am curious, Russell, watching this with your daughter. Did it prompt any conversations that you might have expected would happen later in life, in her life? No, I, oh, okay. I think it might on a rewatch in a few years. I think because the uh, metaphor and what's happening to her is so fantastical and being a metaphor for something else that you can read it on the level that she does, that it's just about a girl turning into Red Panda. Or you can read it on my level, which is that this is about going through from childhood to teenagehood well except um, that there is an overt and explicit reference oh this is happening to you and it's and that's one of the reasons as you said that idiots were complaining yeah. about it that it's a disney film that actually mentions menstruation oh my god <laughs> and <laughs> but, that's the thing but it mentions it in the same way that uh, yes. it, other things are mentioned because the explicit thing is that it's a girl turning into a red panda mm-hmm. at some point we'll have to have that conversation i say we <laughs> people in the fa- people in our household have to have that conversation hopefully not me because I don't really know what I'd say beyond you know hey it happens ask your mother <laughs> I've never experienced it but I'm well, told quite. it happens mm-hmm. you know, every 28 days yeah <laughs> James what's your pick for the month oh how do I follow up menstruation chat um <laughs> my suggestion comes from um not from Mitch Bain, an excellent musician and composer on some films like A Ghost Waits, and one of the hosts of a favourite podcast of mine, Strong Language and Violent Scenes. Um, my suggestion is the No Sleep podcast. Now, there's an interesting history with this. Um, it began as a subreddit where people would exchange scary stories, and it became popular and led to a member suggesting what if this got turned into a podcast and it was narrated in an audiobook style? So, and this small group of the members worked together to make this happen. And they had vol- volunteers on Reddit helping to narrate and produce content for the first two seasons before even more popularity led to it becoming more professional kind of podcast. So what you have is David Cummings acts as host and showrunner for this anthology series of original horror stories. And along with it comes atmospheric music and terrific voice work, which helps to bring these tales alive and in such vivid ways that 
just inhabit your mind. And there's about, there's 10 years of ep episodes uh, in this. Each one has multiple stories available. And there's even more if you stump up for a season pass for each season. Um, currently, it's on the 17th season series, but it's one of those shows where you can dip into any episode and it's not like you're going to get lost or you accidentally stumble onto a sequel to another story. If there's a sequel, they'll say up front. But it's a magnificent collection of imaginative horror stories which go through various subgenres, various tones, and there's something for everyone there. It's just dipping in and finding the ones which you latch onto and which you call your favorites and it's also one of those where you have you can have your own favorite narrators because with each narrator you have your own sense of quality and their stories i feel are better gone into knowing as little as possible they don't give you any synopsis or anything they just tell you the title who's narrating whose voices if there's any trigger warnings um and some of them really benefit from that. I actually have a few recommendations if anyone fancies checking out. My first one is series five, episode 13, entitled My Wife Cooked Me Dinner, which is one of the most heartbreakingly beautiful tales in this podcast. And then we have series six, episode 17, entitled Char, which is really unsettling a terrific example of how narration can really add to a story and really bring out an extra something in it there's also series five episode four mama man which is genuinely one of the scariest most graphic tales on this podcast generally some of these don't listen to out loud if you got um younglings around because yeah, there's some things they definitely shouldn't hear, um, particularly when you got sound effects bringing them alive so vividly. My penultimate recommendation is called Shreds, the opening episode of Series 13. It plays with the premise in acting out as though it's taking part on a radio station, and guest star Elijah Wood on that episode. You get some famous faces um, joining in. I Mike Flanagan's on at least one episode, I believe. And my personal favourite is entitled Feed the Pig, which is the, in series eight, it's Holiday Hiatus 2 is the episode um, title. Um, it's a real fan favourite for good reason. It, it's so popular, it got a sequel entitled Escape the Black Farm. It got a comedy sequel entitled Feed the Pig 2. And the writer even expanded the premise into a couple of books, which I've heard good things about. If you want to start with something to really get you in there, I would recommend Feed the Pig. But if you want to go through a couple other ones, there's my recommendations. And generally, just pick a couple ones, which um, could be random. Just go through all over the season. There's going to be something for everyone. And I want to say have a fun time, but at the very least, have an interesting time. Certainly sounds interesting. Hmm. It's yeah, weird, it sounds it? Uh, sounds fun. Sounds yeah. Uh, yeah, not when I'm listening with the kids. <laughs> no, their headphones are good. Yeah, uh, years ago, and 
1999, um, I went to the Edinburgh Festival and I saw a stand-up comedian and um, music performer there called Mitch Bain. I Mm. thought at first it might be the same guy, but I've been looking up this um, Mitch Bain now and it doesn't look like him. But so do we know if the Mitch Bain who runs this podcast looks at all, looks a bit like Bill Bailey? Not Bill Bailey, like, okay. no. I think he's quite youthful in, yes. in, you know, yeah. youthful to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Different fella, clearly. But yeah, certainly sounds like a, um, yeah, like, like, like quite a varied listen from the sounds of it. I wouldn't say it's one of those where the quality hits rock bottom. It's, <laughs> it's certainly one where you're going to get more out of some stories than others. But when it hits, it really hits. Um, some of the earlier seasons aren't their strongest work, but I think there's interesting stuff in there. Four Dunn's coming to Toronto! What? Shut up! It's me! Calm down, right? I'm gonna let go, and you're gonna be chill. Got that? Chill. And those are our recommendations. You've got a trio of films and a podcast of a whole host of horror stories. So, I mean, that'll keep you busy for the month, certainly. Uh, yeah. All that leaves us to do is say who we've been. And I'll start with James. Who are you and where can people find you? <laughs> I'm James. I'm on Twitter and Letterboxd at RoddersJ04. That's with two Ds. I also write reviews, put my podcast appearances features whatever onto the reviewing rodders.co.uk so go and have a look if you're interested vincent what about you who are you and where can we find you i am the whisper in the classroom the scratching at the corner of your mind and if that doesn't sell you and wanting to find me, I don't know what will. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd uh, at Dr. Gain. That's D-R-G-A-I-N-E. Or you can also go to the Critical Movie Critics, as well as Bloody Good Screens and The Geek Show to see the reviews. And I'll be posting a, um, an overview of Fright Fest there in the coming weeks. Um, yeah, that, that's me. That's where you can find all of my reviews and commentary long and short. Russell, if I was to stop your heart and then ask you about your experiences, um, what would you tell me? I'd tell you you should come follow me on Twitter at Russ Loves Movies, which as well as talking about my experience of near-death experiences, which are few and far between, thankfully, and it's mostly just, you know, early starts and being shocked awake by my daughter when she stood next to me at five in the morning, um, yeah, you'll find me retweeting any podcast appearances or reviews I post for people. And my own podcast is not just for kids. We're currently doing two strands. Yes, I've decided to release two podcasts a week because I'm mad. On the one hand, I'm doing musicals. I'm doing all things singing and dancing. It's really fun to like explore musicals throughout the last about 75 years of cinema. And then on Fridays, I'm doing a limited series called Jurassic Park Connections, where I am looking at films from the cast and crew of Jurassic Park because I love Jurassic Park. And to give you a flavor, this week we've got an episode on West Side Story, the 60s version, and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. 
Then on Friday, you get an episode on Blue Velvet. So, you know, it's kind of diverse and I'm tangentially moving. I'm kind of, I should come closer to family films, but I seem to be pulled away to cover things like Blue Velvet, The Fly and Halloween Free Season of the Witch. You're going to get to um, either Event Horizon or In the Mouth of Madness? Not this time, but I might do another connections one that might we'll see if that gets me connected into something like that. Um, yeah, <laughs> why not have fun with what you've got? <laughs> and so, yeah, so this has been Invasion of the Potty People. We've given you Oscars, we've given you Fright Fest, we've given you Golden Oldies, and we've given you a butt ton of uh, recommendations. So all you've got to do is go off and watch a lot of films, maybe a little bit of TV, listen to some podcasts, and just, you know, keep safe, have a fabulous time, and we'll see you next month. Bye! Bye.